but I've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark at this, uh, this senior home, and I've just been reminded, as I've been preaching through it again, of how much I love this Gospel. I know a lot of people think of Mark as kind of the, I don't say poor man's Gospel, <laughs> but kind of the, the beginner Gospel, right? Think of it as kind of the most basic, the most kind of simple. Well, that's very deceptive. And uh, hopefully I can show you some of that, because though, though my text is, is Mark chapter 8, verses 22 uh, to, to, to the end of the chapter, uh, really my text is kind of the whole section, middle section of the Gospel of Mark, uh, which goes from 8.22, the beginning here, to the end of chapter 10. And, and Mark, while he is more concise than the other Gospel writers... Yet, he, he, he can bring across things in a, in a subtle, economical kind of way, really by means of, of, of really fascinating literary devices and structure and repeating key words and, and ideas at times, where he can make the same point or similar points or maybe a slightly different angle point than the other uh, gospel writers, but without having to just explicitly state some of those things. And, and I think that, that this passage here in, uh, in Mark 8, uh, 22 and following is an exemp- ex- uh, excellent example of that. Mark will even use things like geography to make these incredibly uh, insightful points. And, uh, and so I, I chose this passage because this passage is, uh, by many people, it's considered to be kind of the climax of the book of Mark. Of course, this includes Peter's famous confession, you are the Christ, in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And uh, even when I preached this, my, my sermon series, I entitled it, Who Do You Say That I Am? You know, because I think that is the key question in the book of Mark. And, and so while I, I might argue that there's another passage that is the climax of the Gospel of Mark, this is absolutely key to, to Mark's purpose. Everything that he writes is to answer that question. Who is this, this Jesus? And of course, he gives it away in the very first verse, right? The gospel of Jesus, uh, the Christ, <laughs> the Son of God. Uh, but, of course, everyone throughout, including the disciples, they're coming gradually to a fuller and fuller understanding and an ability to answer that question, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter's confession is seen as such a climax, a high point, and yet, if that's the climax, it immediately kind of drops off really quickly because you see the disciples have, have more. Uh, I've entitled this sermon, The Misunderstood Messiah. Right? They, they recognize him to be, to be the Messiah, but they don't yet fully understand what that means for Jesus or for them. Uh, and so I've, I've chosen this passage because it's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it's just, uh, again, it's about our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's, uh, let's read this passage, and then, and then we'll jump into it. So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. I'm reading out of the ESV. Uh, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village." And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy angels. Let's pray quickly for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us of your Holy Spirit. We've already prayed in song for your Holy Spirit to be with us. We ask for your Holy Spirit to open the, the eyes of our hearts, to cure our spiritual blindness, to clarify our spiritual sight, especially that we might See Jesus Christ once again, his glory, his true identity, his true mission, and what that means for us. Only you can do this. We pray that you would, by your spirit, in Christ's name we pray. Uh, Amen. Well, uh, I've I've said that I do think that this passage is one of the the key passages in the book of Mark. But it also is key because, as I've kind of already mentioned, I, I do think that there's a major transition that's happening here in the gospel of Mark as well. Uh, that, that really the first major, I think the Gospel of Mark is really s- structured in three major sections. And, and Mark marks the, Mark marks those, Mark uh, signals those three major sections for us it, by geography. Right? Uh, the first major section, everything up until our passage, has taken place in Galilee, right, in, in the north. Now, we know from the book of John and other places, Jesus did travel down multiple times to Jerusalem. He's already been there. But in the Gospel of Mark, you wouldn't know that. Everything that's been taking place so far in the Gospel of Mark has been in Galilee or in some of the Gentile regions right outside of Galilee. The the third major section of the Gospel of Mark, which begins with chapter 11, the triumphal entry, everything after that then, of course, takes place in Jerusalem, right, in Jerusalem. So, what about the second major section? Which, again, I believe starts here at chapter 8, 22, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 10. And and I would encourage you, I'll be drawing out some things as we go, maybe later this afternoon or later this week. Read this whole section and and, and keep some of these things in mind. Look for some of these these subtle clues that Mark gives. But this section, the, the first section takes place in Galilee. The second section takes place in Jerusalem. So what about the, or the third section? The second section, where does that take place? Well, it takes place on the way, on the road, right? however your Bible translates it. But throughout this section, you, you keep saying, and, and they were on the way, they were on the road. The first time that that's said is in, in verse 27. In verse 27, and Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, on the road. So that's basically how Mark translates this. And I believe this idea of being on the way, being on the road, it's literal. But ultimately, it's on the way to where? It's on the way to Jerusalem. But I I believe that this takes on, as the, the Gospel of Mark, as the section moves on, a more and more symbolic significance to it as well. Because what is there awaiting Christ in Jerusalem? What do the disciples think is awaiting Christ in Jerusalem versus what does Jesus know and what does he begin to tell them awaits him in Jerusalem? So on the way, on the road, that's uh, geographically what, what marks this second section of the Gospel of Mark. Also in the first section, you see Christ spending a, a lot of time in front of large crowds, performing many miracles and, and teaching by means of parables. Right? He's with the crowds, he's performing the miracles, which is why most of the crowds are there anyway, and also because he feeds them from time to time. Uh, but he's also teaching in parables, and he's already said, you know, the parables are for them. It's, it's actually, so many people look at the parables of Jesus and they say, oh, he's such a masterful teacher. Look how he's using illustrations to make these points. But the Gospels tell us, well, no, why did Jesus use parables? It wasn't so much to reveal as it was to conceal the truth. And then he would take his disciples in private and he would explain to them the parables. Well, in the, in the second section, this section in, in chapter 8 through 10, 
Uh, we don't see Jesus with the crowd so much anymore. He's, he's spending more time now with his closest disciples. And he's speaking to them no longer in these mysterious dark parables. But he's speaking to them as we see there in, in verse 32. Plainly. Clearly. There's no more riddles. There's no more things to, to figure out. He's, he's speaking the truth and he's speaking it clearly and plainly to his own disciples. But again, as I said this, well, I haven't said this yet. The second section also is, is marked out in, in another unique way. It begins and ends with two very similar events. As you can see, how does it begin in verse 22 of chapter 8? It begins with the healing of a blind man. The end of chapter 10, that ends with the healing of another blind man. Uh, the only two healings of blind men in the Gospel of Mark, there's no other miracles in this section except for these two healings of these two blind men. And so that shows us, in some ways, this is a, a literary device called an inclusio or an inclusion or bookends. Right? It's, it's marking off a section, but it's also repeated ideas, repeated themes, repeated uh, words even, that, that point to the overall meaning of the whole section. And I really do believe that's what, what's happening. And that's why I lumped together this healing of the blind man with then Peter's confession and Christ's teaching following up on that. But this, especially this first healing here in verses 22 to 26, is in a word kind of strange, right? Have you ever thought about it or wondered about this? You know, it's kind of strange. Jesus does some, some interesting rituals, right? He spits and he lays his hands on the man's eyes. Uh, we won't get into that right now. But the, the really unique and weird, if I can use that word, fray, uh, uh, aspect of this healing is, is, is that it takes place in two stages, Right? Isn't that kind of strange? Right? Jesus, here's a blind man. Jesus lays his, he spits, he lays his hands on his eyes, and he says, do you see anything? And what does the blind man say? He says, okay, well, I can see men, figures, but they look like trees, and I know that they're not trees, though, because they're moving around. <laughs> they're, they're walking. Right? I'm, I'm very, very, I have very, very poor eyesight. Uh, if I lived a couple hundred years ago before glasses, and especially these potent glasses, I'm, I'm about that close to being legally blind without my glasses. Uh, so, so I very, very, and I, I can understand what this man experienced. You, know, you look up, you kind of see these blurry figures around you. They're men, they might as well be trees, but they happen to be moving around, so you know they're not trees, they're men. Right? So, so he can see, but he can't see clearly. Right? It's, it, everything's blurry. And so Jesus lays his hands on his eyes a second time, and then it says what? Then he recovered his eyesight, and he could see clearly. Now, why did this happen this way? I mean, we certainly know, even just from the rest of the Gospel of Mark, it's not like Jesus made a mistake. Right? Oh, his first healing wasn't quite strong enough, it just didn't quite take, and so he had to do it a second time. No, I mean, Jesus didn't have to touch the man. He, he could have healed him from a distance with a simple word of command. I mean, Jesus could have done this. There's no reason uh, in, in Jesus, a lack of power or anything like that, that, that this healing should have had to take place in these two stages. That the first stage wasn't quite strong enough, and then the second stage got the job done. So it's strange, and we wonder why. Well... What is going on here? Why does Mark begin this second section of his gospel with such a strange account? Why did Jesus perform this miracle in two stages? Well, I firmly believe that he performed this healing in this way, intentionally, in order to make a symbolic point, to make a spiritual point. Now, did this literal, physical healing of a blind man actually take place? Absolutely. I'm not denying that. But the way that Jesus went about it, especially in these two stages, that he was making a broader point. He was making a symbolic point, a spiritual point. And I'll hope to prove that to you in a few moments. But first I want to show you how immediately after this healing, this two-stage healing, Christ's disciples then are shown to go through a similar two-stage healing of their spiritual blindness. 
That, that's, that's my argument. That, that, that the two-stage physical healing of the blind man is meant to represent a similar two-stage healing of the spiritual blindness of Jesus' own disciples. A similar two-stage recovery of their spiritual sight. And so I, I phrase the main divisions of our message this afternoon. I'll probably say morning at some point. Uh, Pastor Johnson's already said morning a couple of times, so <laughs> I don't feel too bad about it. But this afternoon, it feels like morning, yeah. Uh, But I I phrase the main divisions of the message in these terms. First, we'll consider what the disciples could finally see. Then we'll see, uh, then we'll take note of what the disciples still could not see. So what the disciples could finally see, what the disciples could still not see, and then what could help the disciples see more clearly. Uh, so just three simple points, simple headings this, this, uh, this afternoon. Almost said morning again. And as, as I hope will become clear as we move through this, is that all of this doesn't just apply to Christ's original 12 disciples. But it applies to all of Christ's disciples, even to all of us as his disciples still today. But first, we'll begin with what the disciples could finally see. What the disciples could finally see. This is what we see in verses 27 to 30. Uh, again, what some people view as the climax of this, this, this gospel. Uh, I think, absolutely, this is a vitally important passage. Uh, but I, I do think our understanding of what happens here needs to be tempered a little bit by the surrounding context. Here we see Jesus and his disciples, again, for the first time, on the way, on the road. And again, as we've pointed out, Ultimately, this means on the way to Jerusalem and to the cross. But as they're traveling on the road, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Again, this is the question that drives Mark's whole book. Who is this Jesus? And and so far, there's been quite a bit of speculation on this point. And we've seen several different answers by different people. And, And the disciples here give a rundown of the prevailing opinions. They say, well, some think, like Herod, that Jesus is a reincarnation of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist has already been put to death. And some people are thinking, well, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Others, that he's Elijah, Uh, again, raised from the dead, some reincarnation of Elijah or of one of the other prophets. Now, it's important to recognize those are very high opinions of Jesus, right? And and you can see even outsiders, like who do people think that I am? Even outsiders hearing of Jesus' miracles or seeing them or experiencing them, hearing his teaching, they acknowledge this is someone incredibly important. This is someone authoritative. This is someone sent by God. And they say, we think to even the point that this could be a a reincarnation of Elijah, of one of the other prophets. Not just a prophet like them, but actually one of the Old Testament prophets come back to life. So it's a high opinion of, of Jesus. But again, we know, not accurate and not high enough. But Jesus then turns the question directly to his disciples. Uh, The the pronoun you here in the Greek is intensely emphatic. It's it's at the beginning of the sentence. It's uh, it's not even necessary, actually, to have it there. It's already assumed in the verb. So it's intensely emphatic, right? Jesus said, what do people, who do people say that I am? But then he turns to his disciples in a probably better English translation to get get across this, this emphatic position of you. But you, who do you say that I am? (laughs) But you, my disciples, who do you say that I am? Now, we all know what comes next. We just read it a couple of minutes ago. I'm sure you've all known for many, many years. But pretend for a moment that you don't know. Pretend this is the first time you're reading through the Gospel of Mark. If you come to this point and Jesus looks at his disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? How would you expect his disciples to answer? Well, if you've been reading Mark somewhat carefully, you're probably not expecting too much from the disciples at this point. (laughs) You really aren't. Uh, Mark presents the disciples in a very kind of harshly realistic uh, and honest fashion. 
to this point, you, you might be wondering what's going to come out of Peter's mouth or any of the other disciples' mouths, and you're not expecting it to be the right answer. Right? We all know that he gets the answer right. But, but you wouldn't be expecting that, because uh, just some things that have happened recently... From everything that Mark has recorded so far, it, it does seem that the disciples are still pretty confused about the, the true identity of Jesus. The only title that they've ever used for him so far in addressing him is the title Rabbi, Teacher. Uh, they've never called him anything else, just not even Lord, just Rabbi, Teacher. Then, uh, a couple of things that have happened recently, when Jesus calmed the storm, what do they do? They're asking themselves, who is this? <laughs> Who is this person? They still don't know. Uh, Then, when Jesus walked on the water, they're terrified. And Mark tells us it's because they did not understand, but their hearts were hardened. This is strong language from Mark about the, the disciples. They're asking still, who is this man? Like, they should know, but they don't know. And then even when he walks on the water, they're still terrified because they don't understand. And their hearts are still hardened. And then, most significantly, Mark has just recorded in the paragraph before this, right? So in chapter 8, verses 14 to 21, another clear example of the disciples' continued lack of spiritual understanding. They still don't understand. It's amazing because because already what has happened is Jesus has fed the 5,000 plus people with five loaves of bread. He's just immediately fed another 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. And then they're in the boat and the disciples are arguing because they haven't brought enough bread. There's 12 of them and there's only one loaf of bread. He's just fed 5,000 with five loaves. He just fed 4,000 with seven loaves. And they're arguing about, about bread. And Jesus even uses it as a teaching opportunity. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And they still think he's just talking about bread. Oh, he's upset because we didn't bring bread. John, you should have brought more bread. What were you, you were in charge this week. They're fighting about the bread. And they know the one in the boat with them is able to feed thousands times more people with, with far less. At least proportionally. And what does Jesus say to them? Because they they, they still don't get it. Verse 17. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Yeah, they are still hardened. Uh, Having eyes, do you not see? Interesting. He's just said that. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he reminds them of his miraculous feedings. And then in verse 21, the very last verse before this new section, and he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? So when Jesus turns to Peter or to the rest of the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? We're kind of wondering what they're going to say, and we're not really expecting it to be the right answer. So it actually comes as quite a surprise when Peter answers correctly, you are the Christ. Right? Christos, the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah, right? the anointed one, the chosen and prophesied savior, that the king you know, that, that God had promised his people and that his people had been waiting for for thousands of years, the Christ. And Peter gets it. He understands who Jesus is. Finally, you are the Christ. I kind of wonder, where did that come from? It is indeed quite the confession. Somehow, their spiritual eyes had finally been opened, at least partially. Their hearts had been softened enough for this truth finally to be impressed upon them. This is what the disciples could finally see. Jesus' true identity, that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior. But amazing as this confession is, Sadly, the passage goes on, Because right? if we ended there, you'd think, all right, Peter, you get it. And again, I do think Peter is speaking for the rest of the disciples here. Uh, but okay, these disciples have finally understood it, right? Their, their eyes have finally been opened. Their ears have finally been unstopped. Their hearts have finally been softened. But we realize all too quickly, moving on, that like the blind man, after the first stage of his healing... The disciples' spiritual sight had actually only been partially restored. (laughs) Partially. They could finally see Jesus, 
but not yet perfectly clearly. Which brings us to consider, secondly, what the disciples could still not see. <laughs> so we, what could the disciples could finally see? That Jesus is the Christ, his true identity. But what the disciples could still not see. After Peter's confession, there's an immediate change in Jesus' teaching of his disciples. For the first time, he begins to tell them explicitly about his mission. Uh, So read verses 31 to 32, beginning part of that again. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then verse 32 emphasizes, and he said this plainly. (laughs) He said this clearly. He said this explicitly. In the next couple of chapters, again, in this whole section, 822 to the end of chapter 10, Jesus will do this, plainly, explicitly, clearly, tell his disciples what he's going to do in Jerusalem, what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem, what his mission is, no less than three times, at least three times. And no matter how clear, how explicit, how plain and repeatedly he, he emphasizes this, the disciples still simply will not understand. One of these times when he does this is in chapter 9, uh, verses 30 to 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. He's being as clear as he possibly can be with them. He does it again near the end of chapter 10. And they clearly don't understand that either because they start you know, arguing about who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom. right? Because that's what's going to happen. Like this, this is the Messiah. He's going to Jerusalem, the royal city, the holy city, which means kingdom, glory. right? And so... They're arguing which one of us is going to be the greatest. Which of us is going to have the seats of greatest honor in his kingdom? Because that's what's going to happen, right? But here he's telling him, all right, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be rejected by the leaders of the Jews. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed. But then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. But they don't understand. Why? Well, their spiritual sight has not yet been fully restored. You can put it this way. They finally understood Christ's true identity. But they still had to come to understand his true mission. They understood who he was, but they didn't understand what he had come to do. And they certainly didn't understand what that meant for them. They needed a second healing to help them to see more clearly. And see how this follows the two-stage healing. But Peter's reaction to this first prediction of Christ's coming suffering and death is quite audacious. He actually takes Jesus aside and it says he rebukes him. He rebukes him. Now, we're not told exactly what Peter says in this rebuke, but from the context and from the rest of this section, I think it's safe to assume it was something like, All right, teacher. All right, Jesus. You've told some pretty shocking parables in the past. But this is going a little too far. (laughs) Right? You're you're scaring your followers. You keep talking like this, you're going to frighten them all off. I mean, I've, I've just told you that we know who you are. You're the Messiah. And we know what that means. It means... You're finally going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel. You're going to drive away all of our enemies, those cursed Romans. And you are going to reign in glory. And we're going to reign in glory with you. We know that's what's happening because you're the Messiah. You're the promised king. You're the promised savior. So you need to cool it with all this talk about suffering and dying. They assumed it was a parable. Something like that. But Peter's rebuking him. Stop talking like this. You're scaring people. You're going to turn people off. But what does Christ do? He turns Peter's rebuke back on him. Right? The same word. Peter rebukes him. Now Christ rebukes Peter. And I would say the rest of the disciples as well. We all give Peter a hard time for this. We give Peter a hard time for a lot. But we give him a hard time for this. 
And, but, but I really think he was just saying what all of the other disciples were thinking and were too afraid to, to say out loud. Right? You can see that just hinted at in, in verse 33. It says, but turning, Jesus turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Right? He's kind of lumping Peter in with the rest of the disciples. And, and we're going to see James and John are going to be arguing about who's going to get the seats of glory and honor in the kingdom. Right? They're all thinking the same thing. They're just too afraid. Peter's the one who actually says it. But Christ rebukes him, and this rebuke is harsh. Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter, his own disciple, in many ways the leader of the disciples, Satan. We think, well, that's a bit harsh, Jesus. But was it really? Why call Peter Satan? Well, Peter is doing here exactly what Satan had tried to do in the temptation of Christ. Think about what he's trying to do. He's trying to derail God's whole plan of redemption. He's trying to talk Jesus out of going to Jerusalem and suffering and offering his life on the cross. He's, he's essentially saying, no, you're the, you're the king, you're the Messiah. You go to, to Jerusalem and you set up your kingdom your own way. That's, that's exactly what Satan had done, wasn't it? Look at, look at all the kingdoms and the glory of, of this world, all their riches. Just bow down and worship me. And I'll give it all to you. You can have your kingdom. You can have your, your, your glory and, and your honor. You don't have to go through the cross. You don't have to be rejected and suffer all of those things. You can skip the suffering and go right for the glory. That's satanic in, in a, the very truest sense. Now again, Peter is, doesn't have the same malevolent <laughs> motives here. It's speaking more out of ignorance and misunderstanding. But it's the same thing. It's a temptation to Christ to skip the cross, to get his kingdom in his own way, not in the way that God had appointed. It's to, to, to fail in the mission that God had given him to do. Right? They understand his true identity, but they don't yet understand his true mission. And trying to tempt Christ away from that, derail God's purposes, is satanic. That's what Satan wanted to accomplish. Indeed, such a thought was deserving of the harshest of rebukes. And in the rest of Jesus' rebuke, he, he puts his finger on the real source of the disciples' remaining spiritual blindness. They were not setting their minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? They were thinking according to their natural, sinful, human reasoning, and not according to God's revealed word. That's just man's way of thinking. That's human thinking. We need to think God's thoughts. And in verses 34 to 38, Christ elaborates on this mindset of man, rebuking it and correcting it. Read those again. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." What this reveals to us is that Peter, I'm picking on Peter, but the, all of the disciples, their aversion to the idea of Christ's suffering, right? because that's what it is. Jesus says, I'm going, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. They don't like that idea. And their aversion to the idea of Christ's suffering is in reality an aversion to the idea of their own suffering. That's what he goes on. He says, if you, if you are, are unwilling to suffer for my sake and for the Gospels, if you're unwilling to take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because Jesus was about to take up his own cross. And if you're going to follow Jesus in the way, on the road, again, that's the increasing significance throughout this section, that way leads to the cross. It leads to suffering. It leads to death. Yes, it goes on to lead to glory, right? As what Jesus says at the end, there is going to come a day when I come in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. But the road to glory leads first through suffering. And, and that's what the disciples didn't like. Their aversion to this idea that Christ 
would have to suffer first before getting the glory. Really, they understood if that's the case for Christ, then that's going to be the case for us too. If we're going to follow him on the way to the glory, we're going to have to... And and that's exactly what happens at the end of chapter 10. Read that account again. You know, they want the glory, they don't want the suffering. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? You You want the glory, you want the kingdom. Are you able to endure the suffering? Are you willing? And then willing to serve as well. But this... This is, again, where the theme of being on the way, being on the road, takes on more than a literal significance. And following Jesus on the road takes on more than a literal significance. Christ is on the road to Jerusalem. He's calling his disciples to follow him on that road. And, again, that road that Jesus is on leads to the cross. Interestingly, this is the first time in the entire book of of Mark that the word cross has appeared. Jesus says, when he predicts his suffering and death, that he's going to be killed. He hasn't yet said how he's going to be killed, by crucifixion, by death on a cross. Here he's calling upon his disciples to take up their own cross and follow him. Again, what did the cross mean to his disciples at this point? Now it would take on much more significance after Christ's death and resurrection. But what did it mean for the disciples at this point? Well, it just signified the the cruelest and most shameful fate imaginable. That's what the cross was in the ancient world, in the Roman world. The cruelest and most shameful fate imaginable. That was what Jesus was then suddenly calling them to, to take up their cross, to lose their very lives, their very dignity for his sake and for the sake of the gospel. Now again, this would have come as a very bitter shock to his disciples. Again, they just finally determined that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah, the coming King. And as you'll soon see in this section, this thought made their heads swim with visions of the kingdom and of glory. But according to Christ, those were the thoughts of men, not the mind of God. In God's plan, both for the Messiah and for his followers... The glory would come, yes, but only after great suffering. And this was what the disciples could not yet clearly see, and would not see clearly for quite some time. Definitely not till after Christ's resurrection, maybe not really until Pentecost. (laughs) But that brings us to consider finally what could make the disciples see more clearly. So we've seen what the disciples finally had come to see, The true identity of Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. But then we see what the disciples still could not see. And that was Jesus' true mission. What he had come to do. To suffer and to die. And what that meant for them as they follow him. They couldn't see that clearly yet. They didn't want to see that clearly yet. So what hope was there? What could make the disciples see more clearly? What hope do blind men have? None in themselves. Blind man can't make himself see, uh, no matter how hard they try. And even those who can see but can't see clearly, like me, uh, what can I do to make myself see more clearly? I'm just as helpless in that. So what hope is there? Well, there is one who can give sight to the blind and who can also clarify the sight of those who cannot see clearly. And we've just seen him in verses 22 to 26, the healing of the blind man. He can give the man sight when he still can't see clearly. He can perform another miracle to help him see more clearly. And this, again, I I think is, while this healing absolutely did happen literally, it also has a very important symbolic message and one that Mark brings out in the way that he organizes and arranges this material. Again, uh, I don't think it's any coincidence that just before the healing of this blind man, Jesus, again, had just said to his disciples in verse 18, having eyes do you not see? And then he meets a man who literally, of course he's talking there, not literally, he's talking spiritually, your spiritual understanding. Do you not yet understand? And then immediately they meet a blind man, and Jesus recovers his sight, partially at first, but then fully. I don't think that's a coincidence. That's intentional. 
this section, again, as I, I mentioned, also ends with the, another healing of a blind man. In chapter 10, verses 46 to 52, and that blind man is actually given a name. Right? We know him. He's blind Bartimaeus. Why are we given a name? Because he most likely went on to be one of Jesus' true disciples. And I think that's exactly how he's pictured here. Right? The, the blind man here in, in, in chapter 8, he represents Jesus' disciples as they are right now. Jesus has begun to recover their spiritual sight, but they still don't see everything clearly. They know Jesus' true identity, but they don't yet understand his true mission and what that means for them. But how does Jesus heal Bartimaeus? It's not in two stages. And we're actually told there, immediately he recovered his sight. Immediately he recovered his sight. And immediately, this is chapter 10, verse 52, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Followed him on the way where? Again, to Jerusalem, to the cross, to suffering. I think Bartimaeus here, again, literally healed, but he, while the first blind man represents the disciples as they are now, still not seeing very clearly spiritually, Bartimaeus represents the true disciple, the ideal disciple of Jesus. Full recovery of sight, full spiritual understanding, and yet still a willingness to follow Jesus on the way of suffering. I don't think any of this is coincidental. I think it is all meant to teach us this, that Christ alone can heal spiritual blindness. Yes, we see Christ alone can heal physical blindness, but Christ alone can heal spiritual blindness. But he does not always do so all at once. He does not always do so all at once. He didn't with the first blind man. He doesn't with his own disciples. And we know this. I think we've all experienced it to one extent or another, just as the disciples here do. We may come to recognize that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that he is the one and only Savior. But after that, there's much that we have yet to learn about the fullness of who he is and what he came to do, and especially about what all that means for us. What it means for us. In fact... I would say we're all of us much more like the blind man after the first stage of his healing than after the second stage. Right, we're kind of still in that area where there, we still lack some spiritual sight, some spiritual understanding. I mean, even as it says in other places in the New Testament, now we see through a glass darkly. Only in the last day will we see clearly face to face. Right? Only when he comes again will we see Christ as he truly is and be made truly like him, for we will see him finally as he is. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, as we come to see more and to understand more and more of the glory of Christ, we're being transformed into that same image, but not all at once. Gradually, stage by stage, from one degree of glory to another. But all of this, all of this, from the initial recovery of spiritual sight to the gradual clarifying of that sight to the final full vision of his glory, all of this is accomplished only by the power of Christ, only by his gracious gift and the workings of his Holy Spirit within us. That's our only hope. <laughs> How could the disciples see more clearly? How can any of us see and understand anything spiritually and understand more and more? It's only by the power of Christ, the only one who can heal physical blindness and spiritual blindness, clarify spiritual sight. Just as his power is the only explanation for how these unbelieving, spiritually deaf and blind, hard-hearted disciples were finally able to confess the true identity of Christ and eventually to grasp his true mission and what that meant for them as well. Let's just ask a couple of questions in application as we close. First, who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? That question, the most important question that can ever be asked or answered, comes to each and every one of us today. Christ is pointing his finger at each and every one of us, just as he pointed it at his disciples in that day. 
But you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's not an exaggeration in the least to say that on your answer to that question hangs your eternal life or your eternal death. And there is only one correct answer to that question. (laughs) Who is Jesus? It's not enough to have a high opinion of Christ, to consider him a good man or an excellent moral teacher or even a prophet of God. You must acknowledge him to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, to be the one and only Savior of sinful men. Nor is it simply enough to give bare assent to that fact. Oh yeah, Jesus was the Christ. Because we've seen in, we see in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, even the demons that Jesus casts out knew that and confessed it. No, it's not enough to know that Jesus or even believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. You have to personally trust in Jesus for your salvation. And you have to understand not just his true identity, but his true mission, right? That he came, he was the Christ. And what did that mean? It meant that he came to bring salvation by being rejected, by suffering, by eventually giving his life on the cross as the payment for my sin, for our sins. It's coming to understand Jesus' true identity, his true mission, and what that that all means for us. What, what, what was the point of that mission? Well, again, in this section, in what I would argue is the climactic verse in all of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus finally, right toward the end of this section, right before the healing of blind Bartimaeus, the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Believe in his true identity, the Messiah, the Christ, his true mission to suffer, to die. But why did he die? What was the significance of his death? This is the clearest explanation that Jesus gives here. To give his life as a ransom for many. To pay the debt that our sins have have brought upon us to God. His own life. The life that we have forfeited through our sins. That Jesus gave his life for ours. We must believe that. If you're still blind to that truth, there is only one hope for you. The power of Christ to open your blind eyes. To restore your spiritual sight. Pray to him to do so. Continue to place yourself under the preaching of the gospel. That he has promised to use for the salvation of his people. But if Christ has indeed opened your eyes to that saving truth. Then praise him for it. Give him all of the glory. You did nothing to open your eyes or to clarify your sight. You couldn't. Any more than you could with your your physical sight. He did it for you. He alone is the one that can open the eyes of the blind. So give him all of the glory. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the first question. The second question is then, are you willing to follow him? If you've come to understand his true identity and his true mission, what he came to do, his death for you as a ransom for your sins, are you willing to follow him? And truly follow him and what that means. Because there are many, like the disciples here, who want Jesus for the salvation that he brings. Who want Jesus for the eternal life and the kingdom and the glory that can be enjoyed in him. But who balk at his heavy demands. The demands he gives his disciples here. right? They want to share in his glory, but they want nothing to do with his sufferings. There are so many who want that. The sober truth, according to Christ here, though is that it's a package deal. You can't get the one without the other. You don't get the glory unless you first have shared in the sufferings. Christ didn't get the glory without first having to endure the sufferings. Only those who first follow him in the way of suffering will go on to follow him on the way to glory. Are you willing to do what Christ calls his disciples to do here? We may not all experience the same degree of suffering in this life, But we must all be willing to endure even the very worst for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. So are you? Because you must be. It's not optional. Jesus makes that very clear here in Mark 8, 34 
to 38. There's really nothing I can add to Christ's words here to make them any more convicting. But they are convicting. We read those words, how these words expose and condemn our worldliness, our selfishness, our materialism, our idolatrous, Jesus uses the word adulterous here, but spiritual adultery is idolatry, our idolatrous love of things and of ease and of comfort and of the honor and praise of men. Again, just like the disciples in this stage in their spiritual life loved those things more. Far too often, I would say, we do seem ashamed of Christ before men. We do seem willing to sell our souls for the world, for temporal comforts, to be unwilling to lose our life for Christ. Unwilling to deny ourselves, to take up his cross, and truly follow him. But we have no choice. There's no other way. Only those who bear his cross will wear his crown. Only those who share in his sufferings will share in his glory. That's the good news. And even as Christ ends there, there is a day when Christ will come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There is glory coming. There is glory on the other side of the cross. There is glory on the other side of the sufferings. And that's the hope that helps us to endure the sufferings in this age. It's what Christ helped him to endure the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame of that cross. There is glory on the other side. That hope is what causes us to, to persevere through the suffering. And Paul assures us in Romans 8, that glory to come so far outweighs the sufferings of this life that they're not even worthy to be compared. They're not even worthy to be compared. May God continue to clarify our spiritual sight so that we can grasp not just Jesus' true identity, but his true mission, as well as truly understand our calling to follow his road, whatever suffering it may lead us through, and preserve us on that road till it bring us to glory. May God be praised.